Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature superpowers, contraception and deadly sins. But first up, here's the news with Victoria Bond. start off the news right by checking in with our old friend, the Large Hadron Collider, that's LHC. For those of you who don't know, the LHC is a vast tunnel underneath of Switzerland designed to propel particles at immense speeds. The idea is to crack them against each other, look at what happens, and maybe figure out a thing or two about our universe and how everything manages to hold together. That's still stumping the physicists. Anyway, hopefully we're one step closer as of last week. Scientists have introduced protons and started propelling them along a few sections of the tunnel. They're hoping to have them do a full circumference by mid-November and colliding by mid-December. We'll keep you posted here at Diffusion. Now we should probably mention at this point that we ruffled a few feathers a few weeks ago when we claimed that the LHC's malfunctioning bits last September are rumored to have been American-made. We're sorry, America. We realize that you ship out a vast number of products, and some of them are bound to have glitches eventually. And remember, we only mock because we love. I mean, after all, without you, there wouldn't be nearly as many wonderful scientific advances to geek out about, like the moon landing, or food that comes pre-packaged in aerosol cans. So, for all of our American listeners out there, Diffusion apologizes. And just for you, from those who have experienced it down under, here are some handy tips about what you can expect from the swine flu in the next coming months. Fact number one, the swine flu has many symptoms that are the same as of the regular flu, but also many which aren't. Up to half of the people who get swine flu may never actually develop a fever, and some also get gastrointestinal symptoms. Fact number two, although the swine flu is not the terrible killer everyone was afraid it was going to become, it's still nothing to sneeze at. Many more people are getting the swine flu compared to the regular flu, and as a result, more people have already died from it than normally would over the entire winter. And remember, it can still mutate into something that's much more scary. Fact number three. Unlike the regular flu, which predominantly affects babies and the elderly, the swine flu has the uncanny habit of infecting young, previously well people. In fact, some early studies from Westmead Hospital in New South Wales suggest that young, slightly overweight women appeared to be particularly affected. Fact number four. Swine flu vaccine is safe and as rigorously tested as any other vaccine. Its role is to help your body recognize this particularly foreign version of the flu. In terms of risk, unvaccinated people are at a much higher risk of protracting complications from the swine flu than vaccinated people do of protracting complications from the vaccine. In global warming news, a retired Indian engineer is attempting to stave off the effects of global warming by refreezing melting icebergs and preventing them from turning into rivers. Chuang Norfell, 76 years old, has already proved his technology works by building 12 new glaciers and is trying to build five more before he dies. 
Chuang is also training new people to continue his work and save the world's glaciers from continuing to melt. The engineer, who is known as the Iceman of Ladakh, diverts meltwater through a network of pipes into artificial lakes into the shaded side of the mountain valleys, where they are kept frozen in the absence of direct sunlight. These artificial glaciers remain frozen until March. Up until now, Chuang has succeeded in storing up to 1 million cubic feet of ice, which can be used to irrigate about 200 hectares of farmland. The Indian government has also allotted 16,000 pounds to allow Chuang to build five more glaciers. And in medical news, one company may have figured out a novel way to prevent the spread of a highly dangerous form of brain cancer through the use of pulsing electric fields. The company, called Novocure, just completed early trials of a device that shuts down the division of cancerous cells. The device consists of two electrodes placed directly into the brain around a cancerous tumor. The electrodes then generate an electric field that paralyzes the cells during the moment of division, thus preventing the spread of cancer. The earliest trial began with ten volunteers, seven of whom are still alive today. Additionally, some early evidence from a lung cancer trial shows that the electric field, when combined with chemotherapy, may prevent the spread of other kinds of cancers as well. Victoria. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Ever wondered how you could become a superhero? Mark West and Dr. Chris Pettigrew from Cork University discuss the biochemistry of turning yourself into an X-Man, in particular the blue, shape-shifting and terribly good-looking Mystique. Mark started the interview by asking Chris exactly what gives X-Men their powers. Well, um, from the original X-Men comic book, it was uh, set up as they were uh, a newly evolved sort of uh, human, where the uh, all of the X-Men characters had this additional gene, which was called the X-Gene, uh, which granted them all their special powers. So even though they all had the same gene, it would uh, the powers would manifest themselves differently within each individual character. And Mystique, who we're taking a look at today, what are her particular powers? Uh, well, her powers were uh, the ability to sort of take on the, the form of any other individual or inanimate object, I guess, um, in terms of her appearance. So she couldn't you know, shape change as such, but she could change her skin to uh, imitate other objects or people. So do you think there's any science behind this? If we, if we look at X-Men as a whole, just, just briefly, is it possible that, that one X gene could could manifest itself in so many different ways that to create all these evolved human species? Uh, uh, without wanting to knock the, uh, the X-Men franchise too badly, uh, not really, but uh, a combination approach could perhaps manifest itself in some of these powers. Not all of them, I'd say, but some of them for sure. So if, if we had uh, different genes acting together, not just this one X gene... Exactly, yeah. And what about Mystique? What uh, If we assume that the genetics are all good and it all makes sense, 
what uh, are, are there, there are shapeshifters and, and chameleons in uh, in nature, aren't there? Well, if we can just ignore the shape shifting uh, thing for the time being, uh, in terms of uh, colour change, um, yes, the chameleons are the obvious example. There's also other animals like octopuses and other uh, well, marine animals that do colour change. And how do how do they do that? What's the science behind the way that they can colour change to their environment? Right, well, this is where it gets quite tricky. Within their sort of skin layers, there's a number of different uh, cell types which uh, give the skin its characteristic colours. Like uh, in human skin, naturally, we have melanocytes, which contain melanin, which is sort of a, uh, a browny dark pigment, which is spread over the skin, and that, that gives us our skin colour. And so, for example, chameleons, they also have a number of other uh, coloured cells, which are kind of called chromatophores. And some of these are things called xanthophores, which are yellow, erythrophores, which contain red pigments. And then there's another layer of cells underneath these guys, which are called iridophores or guanophores. And these are containing guanine, which reflect the blue part of the light. So when you can combine, say, uh, yellow and blue, that gives you green as a different colour. And then the melanin layer underneath that gives uh, a whole sort of light dark element to it as well so you can change the shade okay so so lizards that are that are chameleons somehow sort of push these different colored cells to the surface and and then change color well it's, it's not quite uh, like that so the cells are well staying still within their layers and within their situation with the skin but the pigments within each cell are highly uh movable so they can either be spread out throughout the cell giving it a particular color or they can be told to uh, contract themselves and so they um, compress and then you get more of a transparent or less of an obvious color anyway. Oh, okay and so how on earth does a lizard that can't consciously think oh I need to change to be brown today how is that communicated to the cells and to the pigments to, to do this? Uh, well, there's a couple of couple of ways. Um, some of these colour changes are semi-conscious, I guess you could say. Like, for some chameleons who are using uh, colour change as a form of camouflage, they need to see their surroundings in order to convert their colour to that of what's around. If they can't see, say, what colour the log there is they're standing on is, then they won't be able to change colour to it. There is a, a nervous element there of you know the nervous system communicating with these cells, saying, "All right." time to go brown but then there's also some evidence to suggest that their color changes is more of a communication or to reflect their physiological state in which case it can be uh, hormonal influences on what colors they are oh okay and mystique would have would have all of this going on i guess have you thought about uh well how would it work in a, a human chameleon well i guess it would be more of a nervous sort of thing with with her in the, the comic books and movies, it's obviously a conscious change that she sees something and she, or even uh, just thinks of something that she wants to represent. And so it's, it's a conscious change of colour and, and shape. So that's colour change. What about changing shape? Is there, is there any way that uh, Mystique could change shape? Uh, well, certainly not using the, the colour system. I, I haven't done any research into uh, shape changing as such, but I'm guessing it would be a lot more difficult. But having said that, um, if you can imagine body painting, if a model was painted with a pair of jeans, certainly a realistic pair of jeans, and you may not at first glance be able to tell whether they're real or not. So if we wanted to get Mystique's powers ourselves, if we were evil and we wanted to become human chameleons, 
How would we go about this? Do we need to have genetic therapy? Do we need this X gene? Or do we just paint ourselves? <laughs> well, I imagine that uh, the practical aspects of painting oneself every time one wanted to look like someone else may not be the most <laughs> It feasible. might be slow, yes. It, w- it wouldn't really help your evil endeavours, would it? No, no. So in terms of genetics, you would probably need to go undergo some manipulation as such, but not the greatest amount, really. Like, a lot of the um, proteins involved are quite similar to proteins that we already have. So we already express melanin, so got that one in terms of light-dark. There's not that many differences between the yellow and red pigment proteins. And with the, the blue layer of cells, they're iridophores. They contain a... It's a colourless crystal-type substance called guanine, which we already have as well. So in terms of those aspects, it wouldn't be a greatest leap to say it would be possible, but then having said that, getting it all right and developed appropriately and then linking it to the nervous system would be quite the challenge, I would say. Yeah, it's a, it sounds like that would be the challenge because skin colour is genetic and if we've got these substances in our in our body, we make them already, then you could imagine there'd be some gene splicing or something we could do. I mean, we, we make frogs glow in the dark. I'm sure we could do something mm. with our skin colour. But then making it so that we can somehow change our skin colour mid-sentence, that would be impossible. Is there any way that... What do you reckon? How do you reckon we could do that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Put your <laughs> I know that we could, to be honest. <laughs> Give me about 40 years and you know, a couple of hundred million and I'll, I'll research it by all means. <laughs> And what other powers did Mystique have? Did she have any other ones? Well, I guess you could um, consider that when she was impersonating uh, other people, she was able to put on their voices as well, which would uh, require some manipulation of the the voice box, sort of along the lines of any impressionist comedian type thing, which is simply a matter of training and entirely possible. Well, that one's entirely possible. And even with difficult noises these days, I'm sure you you could figure out ways of doing it electronically. Oh, exactly. I mean, people have uh, uh, voice voice box implants these days. Stephen Hawking talks through a computer. It's, it's not a voice box thing, but he talks through a computer. I'm sure that there are ways mm. that we can do the voice uh, impersonation. So I reckon we've got this one down. Our yep. problem really is with the skin colour, maybe some genetic uh, enhancements in the future, we'll be able to do that. But being uh, The three-dimensional c- side of things, which we haven't looked into. The 3D and the consciously... Uh, changing of skin colour is difficult. So, yeah. so if we had to rate the scientific plausibility of Mystique, perhaps uh, how plausible is it that we could create a Mystique, say, in the next 200 years, what would you give it out of 10? Oh, in the next 200 years, I'd say if someone really wanted to, then I would say it was seven and a half, eight. Seven and a half, eight out of ten. That's pretty high on our newly invented, scientifically credible character rating. The difficulty will be, again, with the consciousness aspect of it. So presumably you wouldn't go straight into trying to make humans like this, apart from all the ethical concerns. Well, that's right. uh, If you were to start using animal research, you might certainly be able to get mice that would change colour or or something like that, but then actually... getting the conscious effort and, say, training the mice to change colour on a certain command would be the the key. You could certainly imagine perhaps some 
artificial material placed on a body of some description that mm. responded to stimuli and changed colour. I think they, these already exist. I mean, the 80s had hyper-colour T-shirts. Uh, this is this is uh, a little more advanced than that, but we've been able to make materials that respond to their surroundings. Um, well, you've got mood rings as well, and you've got mood rings, uh, highly scientific. But yeah, you could I think you could imagine a material that responded to its to stimuli and probably light stimuli. I mean, they're making materials these days to uh, make objects look invisible. It's a different setup, but it just shows that we can do some pretty funky things these days with light. Yeah. I think uh, there, there would be some chance of making something artificial like this, but whether we can manipulate a human... Actually, now that I've just thought about it, another problem would be things like hair. Ooh, Difficult you... to generate a full head of hair in a matter of seconds. So I'd suggest that our mystique might have to carry around a suitcase full of wigs. It's sort of making it very difficult for, for any impromptu changing, really, isn't it? It is, it is. But I guess it is um, somewhat feasible for massive protein synthesis or, you know, hair follicle synthesis. If you look at, say, I don't know, spiders spinning their webs, they're able to generate a huge amount of web material in a very short space of time. So that's a perhaps re- some sort of principle along those lines would work. That's a really good That's a really good point, isn't it? So spiders can make a web overnight. So we're not we're a little way from instantly changing, but perhaps we could get to a stage where a mystique like character could grow a full head of hair overnight perhaps. Yeah, I guess so. So maybe we've inadvertently cured uh, baldness here as well. <laughs> Let's hope we have Mark. Let's hope we have. And now Charles Willock reports on the distribution of deadly sins in the United States of America. Using modern collections of data and geographic information systems, geographers Voigt, Bergstrom, Doolan, and Steimers from Kansas State University have mapped the classical seven deadly sins for the United States. Rather than sociological opinion survey methods, they plotted measurable data. Greed, for example, was characterised as the average income compared with the number of people living below the poverty line per capita suggesting that for those in areas high on that factor, if they made money, they held on to it. California, Arizona, Texas, Florida and the eastern seaboard of the US all featured strongly on the greed map. Gluttony, the number of fast food restaurants per capita, was prominent in parts of Texas and Virginia. Roth, the number of violent crimes, murder, assault and rape per capita. Lust, the number of reported sexually transmitted disease cases per capita. And envy, the total number of thefts, robbery, burglary, larceny and grand theft auto per capita were all high in the Bible Belt states. A controversial parameter for some was the characterisation of sloth as expenditure on art, entertainment and recreation compared with employment per capita. The geographers also plotted the converse of each of these sins, thereby producing a saintliness map. And finally, Patrick Ruby and I discuss some of the lesser-known hazards of oral contraception. What they've done is they've managed to confirm some of the old things they knew were problems with Mm -hmm. the contraceptive pill. So the contraceptive pill basically stops a woman's 
monthly menstrual cycle mm-hmm. and fools her body into thinking she's pregnant. Now, this has consequences because things, there are a lot of hormonally controlled things that change. So one of the things that they've confirmed is that a woman's sexual preference for men changes. So Sexual preference for men? How, how does it change? In what way? Well, normally when you're selecting a mate, men and women are sensitive to genetic differences. You want someone that's not closely related to you. And the MHC that we discussed on the vaccination special, which is your body's record of what you're genetically immune to, what diseases you naturally resist, if it's different to the person you're going to have a child with, then you're likely to have a child that's resistant to lots of different things instead of just the same things. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for all sorts of other things. But generally, it's it's one of the ways we look for people who are not related to us to have children with. And there's all sorts of other things to do with compatibility and, and viable, just having children at all. So when you take the pill and your body thinks you're pregnant, women will then prefer the opposite kind of male who is closely related genetically, at least, if not in actuality, because they'll help her look after the child and her while she's uh, pregnant. And this is all thought to be linked to the MHC gene, That's part it? of what they're, they're thinking is how the body, how the brain knows what's oh, going okay. on for the mate selection. So the danger is, in this case, that you meet someone and fall in love while you're taking the pill, uh, if you're a woman, and then you enter a long-term partnership, you get married or whatever, and you decide to have a child, and when a woman stops taking the pill, this will no longer be affecting her mate selection, and her natural mate selection kicks in, and the guy she's chosen will have been someone who's not genetically compatible. So one, she'll be less attracted physically, and two, she may not be able to conceive with this guy, or if she does, she'll conceive a child that won't be as healthy as a guy that she'd chosen otherwise that won't have the the right mix of immunity that's right certain things amongst other things and the other thing of course is that unfortunately the contraceptive pill reduces sex drive in most women and it seems to be a permanent effect like it doesn't come back when you stop taking the pill Hmm. so that's another issue on the flip side though i do know that there are several benefits to taking the contraceptive pill apart from obviously being able to control birth contraceptive pills have been used to control um, menstrual cycles, especially when uh, women have particularly heavy bleeding. It helps to to regulate that and to reduce heavy periods and the discomfort that uh, women may feel during these periods. The pill also has been shown to have some beneficial effects in preventing or reducing the risk of getting some types of cancer specifically ovarian and endometrial cancers. I think it reduces your risk when you've been taking it for a fair amount of time after about four, five, six years. It significantly reduces your risk. There we go. They, well, obviously, it's an essential drug. It's got all these benefits for mm. women that they can't miss out on, as well as being a really good contraceptive that's mm. changed the world. It's but also good if you have acne. Well, that's right. If you're a woman with acne, if you're a man with acne, too bad. But if you're a woman (laughs) with acne, then the contraceptive pill, the estrogen, can help your skin Mm -hmm. recover. They obviously need to work on the side effects Mm. and make it a gentler pill with less side effects. Mm. 
they're modifying it all the time. There's there's several types of pills that you can get now. Several type of mixtures. It's there. There was traditionally the estrogen only pill, and now there's the mix mixture of estrogen and progesterone, and you can progesterone, and you can get progesterone only pills as well, um, all with slightly different ways of acting, and uh, slightly different effects as a result of that. Um, so there's a fair bit of choice, but for birth control, I suppose the condom is probably still something which has well, unless you have the latex well, it's allergy. Also cheap. But it's it's odd that we I know in Australia we certainly don't have all of the contraceptive devices that are available other places in the world. Mm. Like for example, in the US and Canada, they have a vaginal contraceptive film, mm-hmm. which is basically a film that dissolves into a gel once it's inserted and, and body warms it up, and it's supposed to be ninety nine percent effective, which is pretty close to the same effectiveness of the condom uh, for contraception. It's not rated as protecting you against STDs, but the manufacturer says, you know, without... They haven't done the clinical trials, but it's suggestive evidence that it might. Mm -hmm. If they went and funded the trials, maybe they might be able to show that it does. But that's not available in Australia. Mm. It's not on sale. You can get IUDs, you can get condoms, you can get contraceptive pills. In some states, you can get morning-after pills on prescription, although a couple of... But before the courts for that recently in Australia where they might go to jail because they got it by mail order from Russia, I think. Oh, dear. Mail order from Russia. But it was an abortion pill. It was a morning-after pill. Yeah. And I would have thought, why is that a a crime? But in Queensland, abortion's a crime. Interesting. So this woman might go to jail and her husband because... It's a complicated area. It's a complicated area indeed that we need better technology for everyone. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond, Mark West, Charles Willock, and Patrick Ruby. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.